Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. I'm so excited to be joined by my first repeat guest, Circuit Judge Candidate Ramona Sullivan. Good morning, Ramona. Good morning, Elizabeth. Since you were here last time, your campaign has really gained momentum. You've knocked on doors, you've walked in parades, you've hand-delivered yard signs. What has been the most rewarding part of your campaign so far? The support is overwhelming. The support is just overwhelming. I think a lot of people appreciate how hard I worked to make this 2020 race look like it's probably going to go blue. People are really supportive. Let's ask you the flip side. What has been the hardest part of the 2020 race? Well, having a bunch of people in the primary, obviously. In the 2018 race, it had been, you know, 18 years at least since anyone had run as a Democrat for judge in the Sixth Circuit. And so I didn't have anybody in the primary. I wasn't in a big hurry to run in and file my petitions because I was going to be first on the ballot no matter what, because there wasn't going to be anybody in that primary. This time it's very, very contested. A lot of Democrats are running. Your campaign slogan has been experience, integrity, and balance. How did you arrive at those words to define how you do this? Because I think Well, I gave a lot of thought to this in 2017 when I first started my journey towards being a candidate. And it obviously starts with experience. You have to have a tremendous amount of legal experience, preferably in civil and criminal, preferably in a lot of different areas of law, just to have an idea of what to do when you're on the bench. So I started with experience. That seems like, obviously, if you don't have that, you have no reason to run for judge and you shouldn't be on the bench. And then I thought, great, okay, so experience, obviously, and then what's next? And then I thought, well, integrity, it needs to be said. So, I mean, judicial offices are one of the, just the most important things that we have in our nation. That's not a position that should ever be for sale. You have to believe, if you put somebody on the bench, that they will make the right decision for the right reason. And that requires integrity. And then I thought, okay, what's less obvious, because those are the very obvious things. The obvious things are you need to be experienced and you need to have integrity. And I realized that really what I want from judges is balance. So that's how I picked my things. I want balance in your career experiences. I want balance in your life experience. I want balance in the way you think and the way you conduct your life. And that's less obvious and it probably even requires more conversation. Because when I said the word to a number of people in the beginning and they're like, what does that even what are you talking about? (laughs) So, you know, I'm not sure how clear it is to to the average person, but maybe we'll make it more clear or maybe it's become more clear over the course of the campaign. One of the major slogans that I used in 2018 was balance the bench, that we didn't have any balance on our bench and still don't. We had 14 out of 14 white Republican circuit judges zero mothers, zero lots and lots and lots of perspectives. And we need balance on our bench. So balance also means gender. It means life experience. Yes. You can't underestimate how important it is to have the perspective of what that job entails by being a mother. It's another thing that's so obvious. It's so obvious. Half of the people that come to court are mothers. People are making decisions about who's raising children, how they're raising children, whether you're good enough, whether you're doing it right. Even though zero out of 14 of our circuit judges have ever done it from the mother perspective. I can't imagine why that's not obvious to everyone. Fathers are very important. 
Mothers are very important. The perspective that you get from life from being a mother is a valuable perspective. Now, as people have lined up behind your primary opponents, how do you not take that personally? It's not personal. Very few people, I think, and I, I might be wrong, but I think most people don't research this kind of thing. I think a lot of people who have signs in their yard for people that aren't me don't know who I am or what I'm about. I had actually, this was a very telling conversation. A person told me that they would be supporting one of my opponents in this race because they wanted a candidate with a record of demonstrated commitment to helping people who can't afford to hire attorneys. And I said, this is kind of making my head explode because if that is your issue, I am your only candidate. If you've got a different issue, I may or may not be your candidate. But if your issue is you want someone with a demonstrated record of caring about making sure justice is available, people have access to justice with or without money, I'm the only horse in this race. So if that's your issue, you need to research this a little bit more and make sure you're not wasting a vote for something that's not what you actually wanted. This is the perfect segue. I know we've gone over your history, your professional trajectory. Let's talk about it again. You began volunteering at Land of Lincoln Legal Assistance in law school. You were a law clerk there in the semester, during the summer. You could have gone the route of billing $200 an hour. You didn't. Instead, you worked for the Champaign County Public Defender's Office. Why did you choose that route? A lot of it, I suppose, is the route chose me. I love what I do. I love talking to people who don't have money. I love talking to people who don't have power and I love helping them solve whatever the problem is that seems overwhelming to them because they haven't had any help yet. It's interesting because when I was graduating from law school, it was in 1996, the very small group of my core friends, I was already married in law school. I already had a child in law school. I did not have a whole lot of law school friends because there wasn't a ton of room for that. My little core group of law school friends were going off to start making $80,000 a year in 1996. I've never made $80,000 a year, and I've been a lawyer now for 23 years. Or after graduating, uh, my starting salary was $23,500 at Land of Lincoln. It was fine. It, It paid our bills. At that time, I was married to my first husband, and he immediately, after I graduated from law school, so that would have been in... I got licensed to practice law in November of 1996, and on December 3rd of 1996 was when he found himself hospitalized and diagnosed with a terminal condition that was not going to get fixed. So pretty quickly, it was clear that my 23.5 was going to be supporting me and my husband and our son. The reality of it is, is if you've got 23.5 to support you and your husband and your son, then that's going to support you. You don't have a choice. You make it work, you make good choices, you make responsible choices, you sometimes make very creative choices, but if you've got good judgment, you can survive and you can make it work. You say you bring a balanced perspective to legal issues surrounding domestic violence. How do you handle such intense, in most cases, depressing cases, but still keep such a positive attitude about people? It's been a journey. That has been a journey in my career. Where I am now with handling other people's trauma and pain is not where I was 20 years ago with other people's trauma and pain. I I did not have a particularly good wall that separated other people's trauma from me. And that's something that I warn a lot of young people about if they're thinking about doing social service things, if they're thinking about working in domestic violence or legal aid or 
any of the places where your hands are actually getting dirty and you're actually face to face with somebody who has, who has just now walked away from a very horrifying experience and you're the first person they talk to because it's very painful and it's real. And in the beginning of my career, I didn't sleep that great. I'm not going to tell you or the people listening all the things, all the pain that is in me that I have heard from other people and seen the scars of from other people. Those aren't my stories. Those are their stories. It was very painful. And it actually reached kind of a breaking point for me professionally, personally, that line that, that I wasn't really drawing a very firm line between. I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think it was about 2003. But it was a particularly brutal week. It was a brutal week. Everyone had an order of protection and their abusers kept getting orders of protection against them based on false accusations. And so we would win. I would win on behalf of my client, the victim. We would defeat the other side on their false claims about abuse against my client. And it was exhausting. It was all the time. And we're leaving the courthouse, me and one of my, one of my clients that week. I'm, I'm never going to forget this, forget this conversation. We were walking out of the Champaign County Courthouse on the sidewalk and she says to me, none of this even matters. It's never going to stop. She had just gotten her order of protection. We had just defeated his effort at an order of protection. And she very profoundly and accurately expressed that it, it doesn't matter. It's never going to stop. And then her little words, the it's never going to stop, kind of circled in my head for that afternoon, kind of bubbled up into a pretty bad headache. And I thought, I have to find a way have to find a way because it's never going to stop for me either. I'm going to come to work tomorrow and a different person, maybe you, maybe somebody else is going to come in bleeding, bruised, crying, and I'm going to be trying to figure out how to help you. The worst thing that they've been through. The worst thing they've been through and you're the one that they're hoping is going to help them. I wish that I had the formula for it. I wish I could tell you the recipe. I don't know how I did it. I, I recognize the version of me that didn't have the barrier and I know the version of me who does have the barrier. And it's not a barrier that makes it so I don't care. I care very much. But it is a ver barrier that makes it so that I can separate your trauma from my trauma. And I care about it. And I want to help you. And I never want it to happen to you again. But I know it's yours. And I know it's not mine. And that's, that is something if you're ever going to do the kind of work where you are the face that's greeting the really suffering people in the middle of a crisis, you have to develop a barrier. You can't stay in that job very long. Is that what led you to teach the class at uni high called Relationships, Domestic Violence, and Illinois Law? That's one of the things that provoked me, compelled me, made me really want to reach younger people. I haven't met anybody ever, whether it's the person that's doing the abuse or the person who's being abused. I've never met anybody who meant to grow up this way. People don't want to have miserable home lives. But a lot of people don't know how to avoid that. And once you've gotten in a relationship that has developed very unhealthy patterns, those patterns just keep on going. Patterns are hard to break once you have them. And so if you've gotten into a situation where you're the one who's on the receiving end of a lot of harassment or abuse, it's hard to get out. And if you're on the end where you're used to having all this power and you're using this power to control people, it is also hard to get out. These are very hard things to stop once you have them. So many years ago, I started trying to find ways to get into schools and talk to kids with the goal being, I want to talk to the boys. I want to talk to the girls. I want to talk to the bullies. I want to talk to the victims. 
I want to talk to everybody and I want to try to help you not grow up to be a victim or a batterer. I want to help you hopefully not grow up to get incarcerated or killed or hospitalized because you're in love. I mean, it's, it's so obvious. It's obvious because you and I were given tools to know how to see the signs and healthy enough to get out of a bad situation, but not everybody has been given those tools. Very few people are given those tools. And the tools change. The, the signs change. The ways now that you might get a pretty good idea that you are going to be controlling and manipulative and abusive is if you're constantly demanding to know somebody is on technology. If you're wanting to, to track them, if you're wanting to see where, they're, where they are, if they don't answer your phone and you just keep calling. And, you know, if, if you find yourself thinking, I need to know where they are all the time, I need to have some say in what they're doing, that's a problem. And if you find yourself with somebody who keeps doing that to you, that's a problem. And that problem very often doesn't heal itself. It just gets bigger and bigger and the stakes get higher and higher and the tools that people use to manipulate and control you get more and more painful. Again, I know we've gone over your personal history, but what you've been through has really shaped who you are. You lost your late husband, Lionel, the summer after your first year of law school. He was diagnosed with Marfan syndrome in 1996. What exactly is that? And have there been strides in the last 23 years in helping find a cure for this disease? Well, first I want to correct how and when I lost him. Because we had our first child the summer after the first year of law school. And so that was in 95. Lionel got sick in 96. That was after... I graduated from law school. And then he had a very heroic and inspirational battle with his illnesses where he taught me so many things. He actually might be how I ended up learning how to separate things as far as personally and professionally because he taught me a lot of just so many things. I'll just throw out a couple of Lionel pieces of wisdom for you. When I first barely knew him, when I first met him, he thought that he might want to go out with me. And he innocently ask if I might want to go out with him. And I innocently said, we're not the same color, so that's going to be a no. And he thought that was the most delightful answer he'd ever heard in his life because he said something like, if you think race is going to be an issue, that's fantastic because we can totally change your mind about that. Um, you know, if the issue was something else, like I didn't like him or I thought he wasn't funny or I thought he wasn't nice or, you know, I was married. If there was some real reason then that would have been the door shut. But if the reason was something as foolish as I grew up in an all-white town with all-white people and thought people of different colors didn't mix, this is where I'm at. And so he thought that was wonderful and refreshing, and it took him no time at all to, to change my mind on that. But then, so we were walking in the dark and the cold shortly after we started dating. So as we're walking along, a person that I knew to be homeless, but I didn't know his name, just smiled at Lionel and called him by name and Lionel called him by name and we kept walking and they were very friendly. And as we walked along, I said something like, how do you know everybody's name? And how did they know your name? This is so curious to me. And he said something profound about how it's been his experience that people generally treat you the way that they perceive you are treating them. And he'd never had any problems with anybody because he treated people really well. He was just very kind and very respectful. 
And people generally gave that right back to him. Tell me a little bit about the disease that took him and have they made strides in finding a cure? So the disease that took him is called Marfan syndrome. It is a connective tissue disorder that I think still it's probably the case that no one knows what it is unless somebody they love has it. It's not very well publicized. Every once in a while, a reasonably famous athlete will get diagnosed and then there'll be a little blurb in the news, but then it goes away again. But Marfan syndrome is a condition that affects all of the connective tissue. There's a very giant scale of how it might affect a person. So it can be very mild, it can be very serious. But in his case, the part that was fatal, of course, was within the cardiovascular system. That's generally the part that's fatal because all of that stuff is made up of connective tissue. So as your aorta weakens and tears and has dissections and aneurysms, that's not going to fix itself because that's that's the condition is that your connective tissue is very weak and falls apart. And so he had, at the point that he got diagnosed, he had aneurysms and tears all over the place. And because of that situation, it had also caused heart failure. So he had very severe heart failure in addition to a number of aneurysms and dissections throughout his aorta. Is early detection one of the key ways to prolonging life in this? Early detection and good treatment is the key. For a lot of people, including, I hope, my daughter, if you are diagnosed young and you take care of yourself, you can have a reasonably normal lifespan and a reasonably normal life. Um, There are some restrictions, some physical restrictions. You shouldn't play competitive sports. You shouldn't do heavy weightlifting, things like that. But if you take medicine to sort of reduce the pressures within your aorta, then it's going to, the tearing and the, all of that's going to happen a lot more slowly. And then if you're paying attention, you can do elective surgeries to correct situations instead of either trying to do an emergency, emergency surgery or being, as a lot of people are, diagnosed at your autopsy, which is what I think historically has happened. So yes, a lot of progress has been made, but it's not a curable disease. It's just a condition where if you know about it, you can manage it for a lot of people. Since you were here last, I learned that you are the uber blood donor in this county. <laughs> Is that one of the reasons, because of how much time you spent in hospitals, that prompted you, or were you a blood donor way before that? I was a blood donor starting at, I think at 17, because somebody came and brought a blood drive to our high school, and they told us that 17-year-olds could donate, and I thought that sounded cool. I I am definitely not the uber blood donor. There are a lot of people that are way ahead of me. There are people up on the wall that have given 30 gallons, I think locally. One of the most amazing things that you do, and there are many, is give blood. Are you the universal donor? I am. I am. My mom is O negative, and I think all five of her kids are O negative, and we do give a lot of blood. There's a lot of pressure that comes with being the universal donor because, I mean, they call it that for a reason, I think. They call it that for a reason to sort of put that pressure on you. My siblings are pretty good blood donors, too. Tell me your favorite thing about each of your children. Oh, wow. Oh, they're, I mean, they're so different. My oldest is currently, he's a teacher's aide at Central. He went to the U of I and has a biology degree, but he's not totally sure yet what he wants to do with it. So he's figuring out what kind of work settings he likes, what kind of things he's good at. One of my favorite things about him is just his giftedness. He was a really good reader when he was two and taught us all how to do the alphabet backwards and all this silly stuff. I mean, he was just super, super ridiculous with 
language and with words and reading and spelling and all of that kind of thing. My favorite story, I'll just do one math story. My favorite math story was in the sixth grade when we had just moved to Edgar County. And so he didn't know the kids at that school yet very well. But when he won the spelling bee, like, of course, he would do, I double dare you to put him in a spelling bee that he won't win. But he wins the spelling bee. And then he and a different student went out in the hallway and talked for a minute and then came back in and said the other student was going to advance and represent the school in the spelling bee because the other student's father was going through terminal cancer at that stage. And my son thought it would be a nice experience for their family to go ahead and have that spelling bee experience. And someone asked him why, and he said he remembered when his dad was dying that it was really nice to have what he called positive distractions. So that's my favorite Matt story. Like my primary parenting goals have always been making sure my kids knew that they were loved unconditionally and making sure that they learned empathy. And I am winning yeah. on the empathy. Catherine um, was born three weeks after their dad died. And so she came into the world. I truly don't know how I would have picked up the pieces without her. But you have to pick up the pieces when you have a tiny infant who requires a lot of care. So I just don't, I don't even know what kind of favorite story to tell about her. She's been saving my life for 19 years. She's so, you've met her. I have. She's a beautiful girl. She's a talented girl. She's um, currently a sophomore at the University of Illinois. How about Michael? And Michael. So Michael's the surprise child. He is a kindergartner. I don't know if you've been following or not, but on our Facebook page for this race, we've been doing a thing we call Why Ramona Wednesdays every Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And we have little conversations about what it's going to be and who's going to do it. And so he wanted to do his Why Ramona Wednesday sometime in the last few weeks. And I said, well, why? You know, why should people vote for, for me? And he said, because you do every parade and you're always at meetings. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a really good reason. So that's out there on the internet. All right. Now you've told me your favorite thing about all three of your children, but one of your biggest supporters is your husband, Anthony. Tell me one of your favorite things about him. What's one of your favorite things to do with him when you're not out campaigning? Anthony is an exceptional tennis player. Sadly, I am not. So my favorite thing to do with him, honestly is going to places where we watch tennis together. He also likes to watch tennis, even though he's exceptionally good at playing it. Um, we tried to play when we first started dating, and he is good enough at tennis that no matter where I hit the ball, if it doesn't go over the fence, he can get it and get it back to me exactly where I am. <laughs> but you can't count on me to not hit it over the fence. So it's really not that much. I don't think it's that much fun for him. He's incredibly patient, and he's so solid. Anthony came into our lives, and my oldest son calls the time before Anthony, um, the, all those years, the 10 years that it was, you know, me raising them with, with my legal aid salary and my, my sadness from time to time. Um, Matt calls that the depression, and he refers to Anthony being the post-depression time in our lives. Anthony is the post-depression time in our lives. He's He's such a joy, and we are so lucky that we have him. One more question before I let you go. I have to ask. Let's play Would You Rather. <laughs> Would you rather have Chicago Cubs pitcher John Lieber treat you and your family to box seats and dinner with the team? Or would you rather James Taylor bring you on stage during a concert and sing Fire and Rain to you as you sit next to him on a bar stool? Those are both really nice choices. Did you know James Taylor actually invited 
I was offered comp tickets last year to a James Taylor concert because the James Taylor team saw my Getting Personal News Gazette article. And one of my things in my Getting Personal News Gazette article was that I pay good money to hear fire and rain anytime James Taylor comes in the Midwest, which if you know James Taylor, you know is a James Taylor song about paying good money to hear fire and rain. And so they reached out with comp tickets and it was sometime that I had a campaign event, so I couldn't go. Yeah, those are really good choices. You're not going to pick one. I'm not going to pick. Experience, integrity, and balance. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Ramona Sullivan, you are going to win this time. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you.